And so let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they greatly feared, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. You will recall that when the Lord Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he prayed out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Every time that the Lord Jesus prayed and prayed to God, he referred to God as Father. Every time but once. Every time but once. He referred to him as Father. And on this occasion, as he prayed, as he was being nailed, he prayed and named the Father and asked that he might bring forgiveness to those that were nailing him to the cross, to those who were participating in his crucifixion. He gave a defense for them at that time. He said they don't know what they're doing. But this defense that he gave was not an excuse. They were still guilty and they still needed to come into forgiveness. They still had to come up to a point where they could receive that forgiveness. And so the defense that he made of their ignorance was also a pinpointing in his prayer of what needed to be overcome in order that they receive that forgiveness. They needed to stop being ignorant. They needed to come to see what they were doing. They needed to see and understand who it was that Jesus is. And they had to come to see in this their own sin, their own culpability, what their part was in putting their Messiah to death on the cross and having understood these things, having this ignorance removed from them, they, they had to be brought to a point of repentance and to believe in God's way of forgiveness. And last week, we began to consider how the Lord Jesus' prayer to the Father there as he was being nailed to the cross began to be answered, how God responded to the Son as he prayed that prayer even at the point of the cross. We began by seeing the portrait or the picture of this scene in which a great crowd is gathered around and the leaders of the Jews and the priest of the Jews and they're gathered around the cross and they're mocking him and they're hurling their insults at him. And then in this place where they're mocking him, the Roman soldiers begin to mock him as well. And then along with the mocking of the Roman soldiers, eventually we read in the progression that those who were crucified with him, the thieves... The two thieves on either side of him began to mock him and revile him, it says, in the same manner. And by the way, I would recommend that you take some time leading up to Easter to read the account of the crucifixion in all of the different Gospels and read the accounts of the resurrection as we come towards Easter in all the Gospels. I might recommend to you, if you can find it, a book called The Life of Christ in Stereo. I'm 
tempted next week to let that be our scripture reading and to bring it with me because it takes all of those passages and folds them all together in one kind of symphonic voice. And you see all of the elements of the story wonderfully complement one another. And so we're looking at one text here, but all the texts inform us of these events that take place. The Lord Jesus is being mocked by the crowd. He's being mocked by the leaders. He's being mocked by the Roman soldiers. He's being reviled and mocked in the same manner by the thieves that are being crucified next to him. But as this is taking place, God the Father begins to answer his prayer that they would come to a realization of what they were doing and that they would come to repentance. And one individual at that moment has their eyes opened up. And it's the most unusual candidate of all. It's one of those thieves that's suffering on the cross next to him. In the midst of his own agonies, in the midst of his own suffering, looking over at the Lord Jesus who has been defaced by the trauma of scourging and crucifixion himself and is struggling for breath and is fighting with a body that is struggling in death. His eyes are opened up to behold before him the sinless Savior. And with this sight, he sees himself in his own sin, and he acknowledges that what he's experiencing is of his own deserving. He corrects the other thief who is reviling Christ still and says, don't you fear God? We're all going through the same experience here, and this one does not deserve it, but we are getting, we are getting what we deserve. Think about that. He is suffering the most cruelest form of death that human beings could invent, in order to strike fear in the heart of all those looking on, crucifixion. It's an agony that was meant to last for days before you transpired. It's a tormenting agony. And as he's going through it, he says, we are getting what we deserve. What this is, is repentance. He's acknowledging his own sins. And as the voices are still sounding forth, they're mocking at the Lord Jesus, he speaks to the Lord Jesus himself. And he says, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom to reign on the earth, in essence, remember me. Now, this is not just repentance, but as we learned last week, this is faith. He doesn't understand all that Christ is doing on the cross, but he knows that Jesus isn't going to be ended there at the cross He understands that Jesus is going to return in power to rule on the earth. And he knows that at one point in time, Lord Jesus will set up his judgment and his kingdom over all the earth. Suddenly, this enlightened thief asks the Lord Jesus, who is dying next to him, to be merciful to him on the day when he returns in his kingdom power to judge the earth. At that moment, when the disciples are fleeing away from Christ, when they are calculating that they had made a mistake, maybe this isn't the Messiah. We had thought that this had been the one who would redeem Israel, and they're thinking, this is not the one who would redeem Israel. We have been mistaken. We were wrong. At the time in which they are going through a maze of doubts, the one suffering on the cross next to the Lord Jesus has his eyes opened. He sees clearly who this is. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is faith. He doesn't know all that Christ is accomplishing there, but this is faith. And this is faith because he knows who it is that must bring to him forgiveness and mercy. And the Lord Jesus answers him and says to him today, not some long day off in the future of my return, but today, you will be with me in paradise. And this is forgiveness. This is absolution. This is the salvation that Christ is providing and that he was praying for when he was being nailed to the cross. Jesus in this moment is speaking in divine power as the Savior and he's granting eternal life to this individual at the same moment in which he is offering up his life for the sins of the world. And in that moment, at least for one person, 
Christ's prayer is answered while on the cross. And the Father gives to His Son, on the cross, this precious gift of this soul, turning and turning into Him. But if we were to look at the passage and the rest of what takes place in the story, we might see that God goes on to continue to put in place an answer to the prayer of the Lord Jesus as He's being nailed to the cross. And that God is at work in the events of the cross to strip away the shroud of ignorance in the minds of those who are participating in His crucifixion so that they might begin to realize who it is that they're crucifying and what they're doing and what their sin is. And so, I want you to look at the cross and we will consider its redemptive aspects and what He is doing for all humanity and how He is suffering for our sins. But I also want you to see that in this great work, God is communicating to those around and those witnessing it and those seeing it themselves and their sin. Their ignorance is being removed and who Jesus is and what He's accomplishing. And He's doing all these things to bring them to repentance. And ultimately, ultimately for any human being, it is an understanding of the cross and what God has done at the cross that lays bare their sins and opens up to their eyes their Savior and removes from them whatever blissful ignorance they've lived under to bring them to a point of crying out and despair. And study two weeks ago, how after this, Peter is an expression of the ongoing answer of the Lord's Prayer because on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Spirit, he preaches. He preaches to the multitude around them and says that you with lawless hands have crucified the Prince of Life. In the very next sermon he preaches after Pentecost in the temple ground. Again, he accuses them and he brings before them their sin. I know, he says, that if you had known this, you did this in ignorance. But this is what you've done. On both occasions, there are great movements of repentance and faith that take place in those that are hearing. All because God was, in a sense, working through these events to open their eyes to what was really taking place and to strip away the shroud of ignorance that was over them. This morning what I want to do is I want to consider two more things that take place to have this effect. Actually, as we look at this event and we see what's taking place and we recognize this great crowd that's around, we understand Luke actually tells us that this great crowd had come to view the theatrics of the crucifixion. Jerusalem was full of participants coming for the Passover feast at that time. And so not thousands, but more likely tens of thousands Witness this crucifixion and came to witness this show that was taking place. The word that Luke uses to describe this event from the eyes of those who are watching, it is found in Luke 23 verse 48 and the word is thereo and it's a Greek word that means spectacle or it's used for a theatrical event and this is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used and it's used to describe the mindset of those who are surrounding the cross. To them... This is all just human theater to be looked upon. They've come for the show. But the outcome, we're told, of this experience is different than what they came for. Their mindset is that they've come for the show, but you'll see that when they leave, they leave with a tremendous sense of woe. We're told that the soldiers and the centurion who participated in this event and directed it and guarded over it to make sure that it was executed in the sense of Roman order conducted in the right way, that in the end these soldiers and the centurion themselves concluded this was the Son of God. You read that the centurion added, surely this was a righteous man. We're told that 
they together glorified God. They had mocked him in his suffering, but there was something that they witnessed during the time of his suffering that tore away the ignorance of their own actions. And in the end, they professed some understanding what has taken place and who he was. In fact, legend tells us that the centurion's name was Longinus, and that he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And again, we're told that when this show was over, the attitude of the crowd had entirely changed. As we said before, they came for the show, but they left with woe. Luke chapter 23, verses 47 and 48. Let me read that to you. Luke chapter 23, verses 47 and 48. Luke writes, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Verse 48. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, the word there, sight, is that word thereo, to that show, to that spectacle. That's the idea that's being put across here. Seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. This is, what is this? But an indication that our Lord's prayer, that their ignorance would be taken away, that they would be drawn to a place where they might recognize who he was and what they had done, and so that they might repent and believe was, was being answered, and God was putting that all together. And Let's again, let's consider two more events that reveal this, two more events in the cross that make this known. And we'll cover more than this, but we'll focus on these two. And the first one is this. Matthew tells us that in the middle of the day, to signify the judgment that is falling upon the Lord Jesus on the cross, darkness falls over the land, all of the land, for three hours. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ began, we're told, at the third hour of the day, and he died in the ninth hour of the day. And this corresponds with our 9 a.m. in the morning and goes to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And so what we're being told in our text here is at the sixth hour, that's at 12 noon, something new and terrible took place. It tells us that starting at 12 noon and for three solid hours, darkness came over all the land. And this is not a natural darkness. This is something that's a supernatural dimming of the sun, and it says all the land. It doesn't say over the cross or over Golgotha. And so the implication is that this is over the region of Jerusalem. It could even be extensively over all of Israel. It actually could be understood as all of the earth. It's covered in a moment of darkness. And it was a darkness at that time that came at the point at which there should be the brightest light of day. Darkness for three solid hours. Maybe some of you were in Boise when we had our solar eclipse some while ago and uh, our family went out and drove out on the desert and we parked the car and there were only trees interfering with our vision or our view and there were other people that went to parts of Idaho where it was supposedly directly taking place but it was dark enough. I have photos of our family as we're all sitting out on the bumpers of our car, sitting on the tailgates of our cars watching this eclipse that took place and it was kind of eerie. It was a little bit different, you know, in the middle of the day for the sun to just become dark all of a sudden and but it wasn't really dark, and, and it didn't last too long. And then the sun came back out after, actually, just a few moments, and everything brightened up pretty quickly. That's not what's being described here. This is not some solar eclipse or lunar eclipse. Which one is it? Which one happens when the, when the moon gets in front of the sun? That's not what's being described here. This is the sun being diminished in its darkness, and it lasts for three, four hours. The meaning of this event is not explained, but for a moment... Could you place yourself in that crowd and tell me what you would conclude? As you're watching, you're watching darkness wrap around this event that you've come to witness and to see. The question might ask, and it was expressed in the song that we sang, just alas and did my Savior bleed. 
Is this creation's own moral reaction to the destruction of its creator? The line is, well might the sun in darkness hide and shed his glories in. When Christ the mighty maker died, for man the creature's sin. John tells us of Jesus Christ that all things were made by him and without him nothing was made that was made. We could ask, is this what creation does when the light of life is being put out? Maybe so. And there is some poetic idea there that can be embraced, and it's been written in the songs that we sing. But, but when the Bible refers to an occasion like this, it almost always is associated with the darkness of judgment. It's the darkness in the sun that God places as a sign that he is pouring out his judgment upon wickedness. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah to return. They were waiting for him to come and bring judgment upon an unjust world and the accumulation of the sins of an unjust world. And they anticipated the fulfillment of a Messiah would come and rain his judgment upon the earth and upon the wickedness of men and to fulfill the prophecies that were made by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel. And they understood that when that moment came and took place, and God brought his judgment upon the sin that accumulated upon the earth throughout all the nations, that God would submerge the earth in darkness. You can read about it. Take your Bibles for a moment, and if you can find Joel, I'll read to you Joel chapter 2, verse 31. You go to Joel chapter 3, but let me just read to you a couple of passages here. Joel chapter 2, verse 31 says this, The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Here's what it says in Joel 3, verses 12 through 15. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. Isaiah 13 is just one of the places where Isaiah refers to the same event. In verses 9 through 11 of Isaiah 13, Isaiah writes this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible." Revelation chapter 8 describes the final day of the Lord when he brings his judgment upon the earth and it describes it in a series of trumpet judgments that are poured out and the fourth trumpet is blown and what takes place is a third of the light of the sun and a third of the light of the moon and a third of the light of the stars are dimmed and go out. It's this idea of judgment that's being rained down. God is deploring the imagery that takes place. God is making known that sin is being found out and that it's being accounted for and it's being judged and his wrath is being poured out. And in this moment, God is making known that all this is taking place. All that wrath that will come at the end of the age, all of it now is being focused and coming upon the cross where Christ is suffering. He's suffering and he's dying there. Now this had to be an unsettling darkness that came upon those individuals. They may have reasoned in themselves, according to what we read in Isaiah 53, we esteemed them stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. They may have reasoned to themselves, he's suffering judgment. He's suffering the judgment of God. 
Because he was an unrighteous man. But why now? Why at that place? There have been many blasphemers before. Remember, they accused him of blasphemy. There have been other false messiahs. They accused him of being a false messiah. But why here now? Why this darkness? And why so long? And why so profound? And whatever their reasoning, whatever their thinking, this is revealing that something ominous and awful is happening. And they are unsettled. They are unsettled by it. There's a second thing that we need to see that takes place here. There is a cry of dereliction that rises up from the Lord Jesus. The silence that he suffers under in the midst of three hours of darkness at midday comes to a climax when the Lord Jesus cries out in anguish. He has said nothing for three hours, suffering in this dark way. And the words were clearly understood by them, by the way. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read that they went on to mock him. Oh, he's calling for Elijah. That is about as deep an expression of the depravity of sin that is being revealed around the cross as they demonically delight in the destruction of Jesus Christ, the sinless one, because they would have known. They would have known what they're saying. You know, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and he slapped his hand over his mouth almost because it was a revelation. It was spoke to him and it came to him out of nowhere. And Jesus said, that was revealed to you by my father who's in heaven. He's made this known to you. Well, in this occasion, when they say, oh, he's calling for Elijah. And they begin to jest. This is the peak of their mocking and of their scorn. And I wonder if later those words... As they began to consider really what the Lord Jesus had said and what it meant. Those words of mocking and scorn, they wondered at what demonic force had taken over them. And filled their words and filled what they said. And coaxed them into such statements. Jesus has said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's taken from Psalm 22. We read it as our scripture reading. When we read our... Our Bibles, and we have our scripture reading, we stand up and we say, you know, our scripture reading is going to be taken from Psalm 23. So, and everybody turns to Psalm 23. Well, they didn't, they didn't have numbers lining up what psalm they were going to be reading. They would say, and they had heard it before in their synagogues, our reading today is taken from the Lord is my shepherd. And they would read the first line in the song. And the person, well, I know where to find that. And not only that, they'd heard it enough, they probably knew what the psalm was. They began to quote it out to themselves. They'd heard this before. Our reading this morning will be taken from the psalm, will be taken from Eli Eli, Lama Sabachthani. It's the name of a psalm. A psalm that they knew and that they'd heard and that they understood. It's a psalm of David. It's a psalm that actually had informed in their minds a certain idea of its meaning. I think what we can understand from the rabbinics is that in their minds... This was a personification. This was a psalm that personified an individual's profound suffering as he goes through a physical suffering and public humiliation and death. But then in the end of the psalm, he comes out triumphant. And that's the flow of the psalm. And in the minds of the Jews, this was a personification of the nation of Israel's own suffering. They had been put into suffering in Babylon. And there they had suffered and had been humiliated and brought into death seemingly separated from the place of God's worship, and yet God had heard their cry and He'd restored them, and here they are now on this occasion in the temple, the place where they give praise and worship to God, and they're thinking, this is a psalm, this is a personification of the nation of Israel, this is a, a psalm of God bringing us in destruction and judgment, and, but then taking us out and delivering us and bringing us into triumph. 
Listen what the individual speaking in the Psalm 22 says. After he comes through the horrors of death, he says, at the end of it, I will, after all is declared of his suffering, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly, and I will pay my vows before those who fear you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over all the nations. And so they knew the song. They had suffered as a people, and they had come back as a nation to the temple to worship God. It was about them. It was about them. Or so they thought, until the Lord Jesus utters these words at the cross. And now, in that moment, at the end of three hours of dark judgment upon sin, Jesus makes Psalm 22 all about himself. The psalm must now be understood. It was a prophecy about him. The words he spoke of that first line would have sparked many of those individuals to fall out the whole song before themselves. I don't know if you have this happen to you, but somebody mentions a song and you know it and it's beckoned from your youth. Your mind begins to trace through all those words and you can repeat them and you can sing them and the melody comes to you and that's what would have happened for many at that moment. The very moment at which those words were spoken, their minds would have begun to retrace that psalm. Would have gone through their minds and their hearts and they would have been repeating it and stating it. And even if they had a hard time at bringing the words to recollection because of the trauma of that hour and that moment when they returned to their homes, that cloudy recollection of those words would have been brought back to them and they would have searched out their scriptures to remind themselves of what it was, what was that psalm about and what were those words and as they read those words they would have seen that everything that was stated at the beginning of that psalm was like a subheading to everything they had just witnessed a description of everything they just witnessed let me read you some of the words from that psalm again think about it if it's playing through your mind as he's on the cross because he's just said it in the middle of the mocking that's taking place still oh he's calling out to Elijah don't give him any water let's see if Elijah will come and rescue him the soldier says, well, let's see if Elijah will rescue him as he gives the water to him. Playing the game, carrying on their theatrics and their show. But now, for some, the words begin winding through their minds. Or they leave that place after what will transpire from here on out. And the words will begin to wind through their minds as God is pulling back the ignorance and revealing to them what has taken place. The words of the psalm are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you don't answer, and by night, in the night, but I find no rest. Verse 6, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 12, be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bowls encompass me, strong bowls of Basham surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, 
Do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And their minds are witnessing it before their very eyes. God, by His Spirit, is pulling away the ignorance, revealing to them what they're doing. And God is in the process of answering the prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what's being done here. They don't know what they're doing here. They don't know what they do. I want you to understand something, by the way. The Lord Jesus is not quoting this opening line of this psalm in order to tick off some prophecy box. He's not simply directing their minds to a relevant portion of Scripture. R.C.H. Linsky puts it this way, quote, The omniscient spirit of prophecy alone could have placed at the head of this psalm that supreme cry of agony on the cross, for it is not due to the fact that David wrote this line that Christ made it his cry on the cross, but because Christ would thus cry out on the cross that David, the prophet, wrote it. He's prophesying what Christ would say, what Christ would cry out in dereliction in that moment. These words of Jesus set out a truth to us so that we may know what is happening there on the cross and our part in it, so that we might know who he is and what he is suffering and so we would know our sin and so that those who are surrounding that cross may know their part in what's taking place and their sin in what's taking place. But also the psalm says God will vindicate the one who's suffering here and God will raise him up to glory and God will return him to give praise among the congregation and God will and God will and that's part of the prophecy as well. Let me just for a moment pause here and let's consider what is happening on the cross. I thought about that this morning. You know when you're learning homiletics or how to preach, you're basically told that you haven't preached a good sermon unless you come to some really specific point of application. But I don't know how to apply this. I don't know how to apply this. There's at some point in time in which we hear God's truth and we silently stand before it and we let the Spirit take it to us as He pleases. What is happening to the Lord Jesus in this moment in which he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's too mysterious for us to probe and understand all these things, but here's some of the things we can say. It's revealed in that darkness that took place for three hours too. Sin is being brought into judgment. God is bringing his judgment upon sin. This darkness alienation from the light is here as Jesus is becoming, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, as the sinless one is becoming sin for us. And as our sins are bearing in in judgment upon him, the Holy Father turns his face from his son. Jesus is fathoming out and reaching to the darkest point of spiritual alienation and hell, and he finds its stopping point. He finds its ground, its final depth, And at the point of final depth, he stops and he cries out in the halt of hell's alienation, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This can be nothing but a place. This can be nothing but a moment of forsaking. Nothing but a moment of alienation. Nothing but a moment of separation. That's that's what it is above everything else. There is no place where God cannot be. Understand me. There is no place where God cannot be, but there is a place where God cannot be known, where God cannot be experienced and felt and touched. And it's in the place of sin, and it's in the place of hell, and it's the place of rebellion. 
Jesus is there. Individuals are at times perplexed by their own suffering. They're perplexed by their own difficulty, what they're going through. They see the awfulness and the violence of sin that falls upon the earth, that gathers them up and sweeps them away. They feel their moments of forsaking. They cry out in the same way. The Lord Jesus is in that moment in a depth that we'll never know and never experience, hopefully never experience. He's experiencing for us. The wonderful truth we'll see is that in the midst of it, Jesus cries out and God hears his cry. And there's a promise in that. In the midst of your despair, in the midst of your forsaking, God could hear your cry still. And although you don't experience him and feel him and you don't know where God is, God is there. And God can answer. All through his earthly journey, the Lord Jesus spoke to give answers to the life to all those around him. He was the one who was providing the answers, the insight to the life as they were seeing and experiencing it. And yet in this moment, he asked a question himself that cannot be answered. It's not meant to be answered. It's simply meant to express the deep, profound anguish that he's undergoing. The Lord Jesus lived a solitary life. He lived a life that no one else could truly identify with. He was alone, in a sense, all throughout his life. He made declarations that made him alone. If a man came along and said, I'm God in the flesh, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you know he's kind of separating himself from you. <laughs> you know that he's kind of making things that kind of put him off from yourself. But if it's true, then he's really alienated from you. And he's in further from you than you can even imagine. And the Bible asks a question, who has known the mind of God? And the answer is no one on earth. And Jesus as the God-man, if he is the God-man, if he is who he said he was, and that question is answered again with him. Who has known the Son? Who has known him? No one on earth. No one. And so Christ lived a life of aloneness. I found a quote expressing the solitude of Jesus Christ. It says this. It was not the solitude of a hermit or a monk, for he ever lived among his fellow men. It was not the solitude of pride, sullenly refusing all sympathy and aid. It was not the solitude of selfishness, creating around it an icy sinner, a cold and bleak and barren wilderness. It was not the solitude of sickly sentimentality, forever crying out that it can find no one to understand or appreciate it. But it was the solitude of a pure, holy, heavenly spirit. And to all his deeper thoughts, there was not a single human being near him or around him who could enter. With all his deeper feelings, there was not one who could sympathize, not one who could comprehend. Spiritually, all throughout the loneliest man that ever lived was Jesus Christ. And yet, as lonely as Christ was from other earthly friends, he was never alone. The Father had always been with him. In John 8, as he's disputing with the Pharisees, twice he responds to the Pharisees' attacks by saying, I am not alone. My Father never leaves me. In the middle of the argument, as they're gathering around him and barking at him, in John chapter 16, as he's making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and as he's prophesying that his disciples will all depart from him, he says to him in John chapter 16, verse 32, Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, it has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. That's been his everlasting experience. It is the nature of the triune God to enjoy this uninhibited fellowship with one another. The Father and the Spirit have always been with Him and He with them. So how can we understand this cry? 
This cry in this very moment is a stunning thing to hear. In time, for the very first time ever, the Son of God is truly alone. With nothing but sin, with nothing but the experience of the future that belongs to us left for him to experience himself on our behalf. Alienation from God. And in that moment, for the very first time, he does not, cannot call God his Father. But he still cries out to him. God, hear my plea. God, why have you forsaken me? And here's the application. No, you can't say that. And here are the three things you need to now do. You can't say that. Stand in shocked awe. Here is something wonderful in all this. Even as his cries and pleas for mercy reminds us that we, in the sense of our isolationness, and we, in the darkness of the recognition of our own sin and the just judgment that comes upon it, may cry out to God, and God hears us. Even though he doesn't say, my father, my father, at that moment, he's like a sinner just crying, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner! God hears him. It's a great wonder. God hears him. Here's what it says in Psalm 22, verse 24. Here's the testimony of the one that was being afflicted all through that first part of that psalm. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hid his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. He heard me. And God comes to his son at that moment of hearing, and he says to his son, in essence, something like this, I think. Drink in, your suffering is over. Drink in, your suffering is over. Your suffering is complete. And the Lord Jesus' next statements are, I thirst. And this is a word of relief, not anguish. When you're in the midst of a great work or a great labor, you just suffer under it. And when you're all done, you realize how thirsty you are. And here Christ is in the greatest work of all. Bearing our sins, suffering on it, anguishing with not a word from his lips. Not a word from his lips for three hours in the midst of our judgment. At the depth of that judgment, at the darkest point, he cries out, My God, my God. He tells us what it's like and what it is. Now the work is done. And it's over. And God comes to his son. Says, have a drink. Satisfy your thirst. Your work is done. And then in complete and quick succession, Jesus cries out the words, It is finished. Tetelestai in Greek. One word. It's finished. And then right after that, another word. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he who said, No one can take my life from me. It says, He laid down his spirit to the Father. He gave up the ghost to the Father and surrendered his life to him. And at that moment, the gospel writers tell us that the earth began to shake and the sun began to shine. And all those around began to understand a little of who this was and what they had done. And God was preparing repentance for them. And God was preparing them a way of faith. And God was making a way for them for forgiveness in His Son, Jesus Christ. And John writes, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. Let's bow our heads. A brief pause before the eternal consequences of our sin. Bravely, graciously, horrifically laid upon him. A tear in eternity to open up a veil of passage into your presence through his suffering. Oh Lord, what I have done. What have I done? Mine, mine was the transgression, but yours the deadly pain. Dear Heavenly Father, we would understand and grasp and know that over the days ahead, that those who participated in that moment had to wrestle with what they had seen, what they had heard, what they had experienced. Days of desperation and darkness and groping. A day came, a day of Pentecost, when the word was pronounced and they clearly were told what they had done and who it was that they had crucified and that God, you had vindicated your son by raising him up from the dead, that he was coming again to rule truly he was the Messiah. And they were fully laid open before you and cried out in desperation. What must we do? Repent, they said, and be baptized. Immerse yourself in the life of this one for the forgiveness of sins. So we come to you, glorious Savior. We choose to live so often along the shoreline. We go through our suffering and our difficulty and we use it as an excuse to turn from you. Instead of recognizing in the moment of darkness, you're showing us where sin would take us without you. The right response is, oh God, I turn back to my Savior. Immerse me in yourself. Immerse me in your life. Thank you for the table that's before us. The bread we'll eat of your body offered up for us. The cup that we'll drink of your life, your life poured out for us. We calculate now something, something of the unimaginable suffering that was yours so that we might escape our own unimaginable suffering and be with you instead. As we take it and partake of it, Lord, we think of those who right now might be struggling, might be feeling their moment of darkness and forsaking, might feel the darkness of sin around them and the destruction that sin brings upon the world. We do pray for their deliverance. We pray that their deliverance might, become, might come to them as they cry out to you. My God, my God, have mercy on me. Oh God, come rescue me. Hear my cries and do not forsake me. Let all these things, oh God, mysterious as they are, drive them to the one who is the answer of all things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.